Rick Santorum, yes, my friend, a great American, served in the United States Senate out of Pennsylvania, but in the U.S. Senate from 95 to 2007, and in the Senate was the third-ranking Republican from 2001 to 2007. Ran for president twice, and again, I don't know if you know what kind of sacrifice that is, and the persecution and the lies and how they go after you and your family and, and ridicule and mock, but this is one strong man of stature. And again, the third time, I'm telling you, I invited him here tonight, not because he's a great politician. I, I invited him tonight to be a speaker in a religious, spirit-filled meeting because I believe he is an absolute respected expert on how the Bible, the documents of God, and the Constitution, the documents of America, and the free world. This is the expert. Now, I don't know everything he's going to say to you, because I don't dictate that. I just trust this man, and we're going to be blessed tonight. And so with that, uh, would you uh, just applause God and thank you for Senator Rick Santorum. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. You're my friend. I love it. That's your water if you want it. Come on, we know how to clap around here. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, as Doc was describing uh, me, I, generously, I might add, very generously, uh, it, it reminded me of, of, of a story. Uh, I, when I was running for president, please sit down. Uh, when I was running for president, uh, I would, <clears throat> I, I, I ran for office in Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania is not unlike Michigan, uh, but you know, I, I was raised in a Catholic, and <clears throat> so I would go uh, around Pennsylvania, and, and you know, there were a lot of Catholics in Pennsylvania, a lot of Catholics in Michigan. But when I ran for president, I went to Iowa and South Carolina, and, and that's a little different territory. And I would go to churches that I'd never been to in Pennsylvania. And one of the things that they would ask me is, uh, what's your verse? <laughs> and I, <clears throat> I mean, what, uh, what do you mean? Well, you know, what's your verse? I mean, do you have a verse? And I said, no, I, I, I never really thought about having a verse. That's not something we were taught, you know, in, in our church about having a verse. I mean, I've all the verses, uh, not, not just that's Catholic, but just all the verses. And... And so uh, I kept getting asked that question. I thought, well, maybe I should have a verse because someone asked me that. And I thought, no, because that would be doing it for political purposes, right? I don't want to go there and be something I'm not, right? And so I, I stood firm and just said, no, I don't have a verse. After I got out of politics, I, um, looking back on my career, I realized I had a verse all along. I just didn't know it. And my verse is John 15, 18. Anybody know that verse? That verse is, if they hate you, remember, they hated me first. So that's my verse to everybody in this room, everybody out there. 
What Doc is talking about is true. I sort of sat here and listened to Doc say in five minutes what I'm going to say in you know, a half an hour or so. Because what Doc said is, is just truth. This country is under assault. You heard the playbook. You could get rules for radicals. You might have heard that book. And you could read the same thing about how a different religion, a different religion, not a religion of the Bible, but a different religion. I love this that I hear this in the United States Senate all the time when people talk to me, they say, when people see judges come up and they say, well, we can't vote for this judge because they have deeply held religious beliefs. I guess it's okay to have shallowly held religious beliefs. <laughs> but I guess those deeply held religious beliefs happen to be biblical religious beliefs. Right? And they say that you can't have those and judge fairly. And they make the assumption, and can't I say this all the time? You know, I am, I am not prejudiced in all by my religious beliefs. I leave my religion at the door. Well, we all know that's a lie. We all know that religious beliefs, a set of moral teachings that come from the Bible or from other books, do form the char your character and your judgment about what is right and wrong. And for those who say, well, I don't let the Bible influence my beliefs, the question that's never asked is, what does? Because something does. Well, you heard one of the books that does. One of the books that does is a book of socialism, radical sexual, secularism, existentialism, nihilism. There are all sorts of isms out there that form the modern mind. And they all deny it and simply point to you and say, yours is wrong, yours is hateful, bigoted, nitpick, pick a, num pick a name, and they're just neutral. They're just neutral. Right? So what, what Doc is talking about, what we're talking about here, is an existential threat to our country, and I'm going to talk about that, how that happened, but also it's a threat to every believer out there in their ability to preach the gospel and to do what you're all in the business of, and I'm not just talking pastors, which is to bring people to our Lord. Right? That's the, that's the, that's the role of all of us who are professing Christians. So, how do we get here? Well, let me, let me tell you where we are, because I want to talk about religious liberty, all right? So, there are one, let me count, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight cases, some of them are combined, so five total cases, right now, being decided by the United States Supreme Court on the issue of religious liberty. Think about that. How many times... Do you hear of one case 
on religious liberty ever before the United States Supreme Court. We got five. Five. Why? Because religious liberty is under attack in America. You wouldn't be having all these cases if religious liberty, one, if religious liberty wasn't under attack, and two, what else? Someone was fighting back. Someone was saying, no, no, no. You're not going to do this to me. I'm going to stand for what I believe in. I'm going to fight for what I believe in. I don't care whether they call me a hater. I don't care if they call me a bigot. I'm going to stand. I don't care if they don't like me. We have a society that, particularly with social media, is just completely fixated on being liked. How many likes do I have? It's all about likes. Did Jesus Christ want to be liked? But here we are. We have a society that everybody wants to be famous, everyone wants to be liked, everyone wants to be paid attention to. Well, these people stood up and say, I don't care. Who are they? Well, there's a, um, uh, a man who, uh, excuse me, a, a, a church in Philadelphia, Catholic Charities, that was in the adoption business. They placed more people in adoption than any other agency in the city of Philadelphia. But when the city of Philadelphia said, well, you have to put people into same-sex couples' homes, they said, no, we can't do that. It's against our faith. And so the city of Philadelphia removed them. And the hundreds of people who are supporting adoptive families all over the city of Philadelphia, they've removed them, foster family, everything, they've removed them. And said, no, you can't be in the adoption business anymore. How many thousands of children in Philadelphia now do not have adoption, adopted homes or foster homes because of this ruling? And thankfully, the church stood up and said, we're going to fight this. They didn't give up on these kids. They didn't give up on these parents. They fought it. And the Supreme Court's going to make that decision. There's also the case where a couple of schools wanted to hire religion teachers and one of those religion teachers to be people who actually believed in the faith they were teaching. Now, there's a Supreme Court decision that says if you're a minister, you can't, you're, it's okay to hire a minister who, in your church, that's called the ministerial exception, and not comply with what's called Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. But it doesn't apply to religion teachers. So we're going to find out whether people who don't believe in the religion they're teaching, who have lives that are inconsistent with the faith that is being taught, whether your school, your school, is going to be forced to hire them. Is that an attack on religious liberty? There's a case on school choice. Again, you see this all over the place. Oh yeah, we can have school choice, but you can't give any money to religious schools, even if the money flows through the individual. It's an individual tax credit, which is the case in Montana. And so we're going to find out whether the state can reach in and say, no, we're not even going to allow you to give your personal money at which you get a tax credit to give to the school. Another religious liberty case. 
be able to, can you sue under the, on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act? Right? That's an act that was put in place to protect people of faith from being discriminated against. But now we're going to find out whether you can actually sue someone for violating that act before you weren't able to do that. Again, someone fighting for religious liberty. Uh, final, the final case is, um, well, is, is a case having to do with uh, uh, religious liberty in the area of baking cakes. We have the masterpiece cake, but there's a follow-on case that's coming up that deals with a florist. The masterpiece case that said you didn't have to bake a cake was very, very, very narrowly drawn. Now we're going to have something that's going to come straight on point. The bottom line is, these are all cases where religious liberty is being affected. And now, I can tell you, because I've gone on national TV shows, and I've talked about the issue of religious liberty. And guess what the media says when I do this? What do you think they say? What do you think their response is? Oh, come on, religious freedom. Nobody's dying. No one's getting killed and persecuted. Look at what's going on in Syria. Look at what's going on in Iraq. And the answer is, they're absolutely right. Look at what's going on in China. The persecution of the church. Real. Terrible. How'd they get there? They get there overnight? Every one of those situations happened because good people who respected religious freedom didn't do their job and didn't stand up and fight. And you say, well, that can't happen here. How many times have we heard that in the last 50 years? Oh, that can't happen here. <laughs> How many things in the culture have changed over the last 50 years that you were told 50 years ago, that could never happen here? What's happening here? Now, let's be honest. I'm going to take a little step back and talk about how we got here. And, and the fact is that we here in this country, in America, compared to all of Western civilization, we are still the crown jewel. Let's just be honest. Yes, we can complain about religious liberty, but right, we don't have the restrictions on religious liberty they even have in Europe. We don't have hate speech laws like they do in Canada. Right? I know there's a Canadian preacher here somewhere, right? Give me an amen. 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 So we still are the crown jewel. Why? Because we got good bones. We got good bones. What are the bones of America? First, the Declaration of Independence. Okay? When I say good bones, I mean foundational bones. We have a great foundation. The Declaration of Independence. You know, other countries have had constitutions similar to our constitution. Mexico, actually, adopted a constitution which is almost, it was 1850-something, almost identical to the American constitution. Did you know that? Except one thing. Except one thing was different. Major thing that was different. And that one thing doesn't lie in our constitution. It lies in the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. 
which is the birth certificate of America. It is the thesis of America. And what is that particular phrase in the Constitution that Joe Biden couldn't remember yesterday? Is that a coincidence? That he couldn't come up with those words? We hold these truths to be self-evident. That means it's available for everyone to see because it's self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights among them, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, Other countries in the world have governments similar to ours. Not a single one, well, there is one, almost all, I got corrected on this once, I gave this talk and I, I got corrected, almost every other government doesn't have the concept in their founding documents that rights come from God, not from man. If you look at another revolution that occurred at the same time as the American Revolution, the French Revolution. The French Revolution was based on, you may recall, three words. Liberty, equality, and, remember the third? Fraternity. Brotherhood. Liberty, equality, that's, that's America. But America isn't about fraternity, it's about paternity. About the Father giving us our rights, not the brotherhood giving us our rights. We don't get rights because a group of people come together and say, we're going to give you rights. We have rights because we're created by loving God and in every single one is inherent dignity that needs to be respected and honored. That's what makes America unique. That's why our bones are so strong. Because the foundation is the foundation built on God. The Constitution follows on and has a wonderful First Amendment. And the First Amendment, as you'll hear discussed legally, doesn't give you freedom of, the spe freedom of speech or freedom of worship. What does it do? It recognizes, it recognizes that they are inherent rights that you have because you are a creation of the loving God. So the Constitution recognizes rights. Those are the bones I'm talking about. In France and in Europe that came from the conquest of Bonaparte and others, what happened to the French Revolution? It was a secular revolution. They burned churches. They killed clergy. They had mob rule. And they destroyed tradition, biblically-based Western civilization. And what's happened to Europe since? Well, I mean, it's pretty easy to go down. A secular society run by the government, replace civil society and the church. Yeah. 
You see, in America, everybody, well, I shouldn't say everybody. Back when I was a kid, everybody had to read a book called Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville. And de Tocqueville, a Frenchman, came over to America and wrote about how America was different than his country because you had faith and churches and civil society and volunteer organizations and strong families and that problems were solved locally, communally. It wasn't big government intrusion. It wasn't a king or an emperor. But we rely on each other because we looked at each other as children of God and had compassion to solve those problems. But that's not what happened in Europe. And born out of Europe, we, we were like Europe when we were founded. Europe at the time of the founding was a fairly religious area. Lots of religious wars, but they were, there was no question religion and, and the Bible were high priorities. They fought lots of wars about it. They had lots of strife about it. And people say, oh, that was a horrible time. I mean, so many people died and there were so many battles. As if now they're not. Look at the people who died in the last century. Millions, tens of millions, more than in centuries and centuries combined. Because were they religious wars? No. They were wars that were born out of the destruction of tradition and religion and faith that happened. Talked about communism. A European invention. Look at Darwinism. Another European invention that talked about the gave the underpinnings that we are just simply a combination of time, chance, and the application of natural law. That's who we are. We're just a, a chance. There's no God. Doesn't need to be. Right? If you look at the underpinnings of, of European and the West, the rest of the West, it ends up in existentialism, moral decay. That leads to Nazism, communism, fascism, every ism other than the ism behind our faith. Christianism. Christianity. All those isms wrote havoc on the world. Destroyed country after country in Europe. And we in America are this little island separated by an ocean, thanks be to God. And this plague didn't infect us. Oh, that doesn't mean that people didn't, some didn't believe it. Some did. But it didn't have persuasion. It didn't carry the day. Why? Because our bones are good. Our families were strong. Our churches were strong. We had something that we're losing throughout the, over the last century. A national identity. I always say, what is America? If you think about it. Everybody in this room... You're a hyphenated American. You're an African American. I'm an Italian American. 
You're a Jewish American. You're an Irish American. We're all hyphenated Americans. There's no American ethnicity. We have Native Americans. But as far as what it means to be an American, it's not an ethnicity. I mean, I could go to France and live there. I wouldn't be French. Right? What does it mean to be an American? What it means to be an American is that you share a set of common values. We used to call that assimilation. We used to say that people came here because they wanted to be like us. Not, as the other side says, the folks that Doc was talking about who are trying to destroy the country and say the most important... I was in a, uh, a debate with Howard Dean a couple of years ago at Northwestern University. I was asked, they, we, asked, we were asked the question by a student, what's the most important virtue in the United States? You know what Howard Dean said? Diversity. Look, I think diversity is a wonderful thing. I think people are different, and that's a beautiful thing. And, you know, viva la difference, it's great. Not just men and women, but of people of different cultures, it's all wonderful. But that's not what makes America great. What makes America great is what our motto was. What is that motto I'm talking about? E pluribus unum. Out of many, out of diversity, one. That's what makes us great. That's how we get along, because we share a set of common values and principles. People say the country's really divided right now. It is, because it's no longer e pluribus unum. Because the people that Doc just read from the book have a different view of what is Good, true, and beautiful. And that's the battle. That's the battle. We were spared that battle for a long time. But it came. It started, in my opinion, I think it's fairly obvious, but I'll give you my opinion. It started with who you would expect a new intellectual theory to start with. With intellectuals. Academia. Academia is where it started. Those were the folks that, you know, look, just, all you have to do is go to college campuses today, but go there 50 years ago. Go there 70 years ago. They were the folks who were embracing this socialism and secularism and, and, the, and the values that were the dominant values in the rest of the West. You say, well, how did it spread? Well, who do these intellectuals teach? The future leaders of our country. They educate the leaders of every aspect of our country. That's not to say that some people who are leaders didn't go to college, but most of them did. The vast majority of them did. And particularly, this is the second area to fall, was in the arts. Avant-garde. Shake it up. Shock. Entertain. So they folded in. Now, for a long time, Hollywood was constrained. So was the university. 
by donors and others who were influential with the university, the same thing happened in the arts. I mean, we always had controversial art. 2,000 years ago, they had controversial art. The difference is, the difference is mass media. The difference is that art is no longer walking into a gallery and seeing something that's controversial. 75 years ago, it's walking into a movie theater in masses, the masses, seeing this controversy. And then on television. Now, again, it was limited. Why? Because we had something, you ever hear of the Hayes Code? Hayes Code was a corporate a code put in by corporate America and Hollywood, corporate Hollywood, to limit these types of things. And that lasted until the seminal decade in American history. What decade is that? The 1960s. The 1960s, everything changed. Now, some of that change was good. Civil rights movement was good. It was a necessary evil that was addressed in America. But you can't clout the rest of what happened in the civil rights movement. Because the rest of what happened had little to do with civil rights. And the timing, it's amazing. We had just been through a war, a horrible war, World War II. And the, and the snapback was everybody wanted just everybody to get along. And that's what the 50s was. It was a time when we just didn't want any more anger and noise. And so the 50s were this, for many, and for the country as a whole, not for everybody, a time when traditional values made a reemergence. But that began to change again. The academic, the, the academy, corporate world, after years of indoctrination in the, in the elite colleges and universities of our country, mixed with a toxic poison, an unpopular war in Vietnam. And everything exploded. Look at the music from that era. A lot of it's great music. But the break from tradition, the break in movies, the break in media, the news media. The news media used to be pro-American. That stopped in the 1960s didn't used to be as partisan. Oh, now we had partisan media going back to the beginning. But again, we didn't have mass media. And so everything, all the, the breaking that was going on in the 60s had a mass appeal, some for good, civil rights movement, much for bad. And we are now suffering from the consequences, what's happened? Well, we, not only do we, do those who believe in traditional Christian Western values, American founding principle values, no longer have any quarter in Hollywood or in the mainstream news media or in academia, now public schools. We've lost them all. Every one of them is now solidly in the left. And now with this new 
industrial revolution, technology revolution, if you look back in the industrial revolution and the revolutions that have occurred in, in, in our economy, it was a mix of people who participated in that revolution. Here, the technology revolution is overwhelmingly who? College-educated young people. They have the money, which means they have the power. You see guys spending 50, $250 million, didn't win a delegate, because he has power. Not much, as it turned out. <laughs> but the reality is, now we have this whole new generation of entrepreneurs who are bought into a worldview that is antithetical to everybody sitting in this room and listening to me here. And here we stand. And here why what we believe are good for this country, which are Judeo-Christian moral principles, a strong nuclear family, where there is a father and a mother, those things are now the last line of defense. Everything else, every other institution. I wrote a book back in 2005 called It Takes a Family. It was in response to a little book, didn't get much attention, that Hillary Clinton wrote called It Takes a Village. Yeah, okay, she got more attention than me. Uh, but I wrote a response called It Takes a Family, and I talked about all of this. I talked about how the bigs, big corporations are now on the side, big labor Big Hollywood, big news media, big education. All of these big institutions, behemoths, are now solidly on the side of trying to change this country in the fashion that was described by Vladimir Lenin. All in the name of equality, justice, you heard Lenin say, use euphemisms. Call killing a child in the womb a choice. Call murder a choice. And convince the public that it's, that's what it is. Societies can live and prosper when good people do bad things. But they can't prosper when good people say bad things are good things. We have lots of good people in this country who I believe are good people, who say bad things, things that are harmful, things that are deadly. They've convinced themselves that they're good things. And you want to know why? Do you want to know why we lost the schools? Only why we lost corporate America? Pick up a mirror. How many in this room, when it happened in your community, fought it? How many even know what happened? How many know what your school is teaching? 
How many fought it? Let me assure you, they fought to change it. How many allow abortion clinic to be in your community? How many people have complained to their bosses about the corporate policies that are against Judeo-Christian beliefs? Do any of you? Now, maybe some of you do, but let me assure you, most of you don't. And I can get it. I'm going to go back to what I started with. We're still the best. We're still the greatest country in the world. Nobody's being shot because they're a Christian. No one's having their head taken off. No one's being publicly persecuted. But they're being privately persecuted. They're losing their job for some other reason. Because they can't lose their job for the reason they say. It's happening. And what are we doing? Because you know what? Life's still pretty good for us. Because we're not feeling it. I mean, most of the time, you know, we're still pretty free. We can do what we want. I can stand up here and be on a stream and have thousands of people, maybe millions of people watch me. I can, I can do this. For now. For now. We could do a lot of things. We could say a lot of things and believe a lot of things. And it used to be everybody would say, you're right. Now they're saying you're wrong. And they're saying worse than that. They're saying you're a hater. They're saying you're a bigot. They're saying you're a misogynist. They're saying all sorts of things about you. And so what do we do? We don't say anything. Because we want to be liked. We don't want our employer to look at us and say, oh, he's one of those. When they put in new corporate policies of tolerance. He's one of those. We don't have room for any of those people. But how did those policies get there? Because someone had the courage of their conviction to be one of those people who said, I want it different. I give lots of credit to the passion of Bernie Sanders supporters. I mean, I can see why they're winning. Because they want it much more than you do. How many of you ever coached a little league team or a soccer team or anything like that? Raise your hand. Have you ever coached a little competitive team? Would you rather have a team of incredibly talented kids who are just there to goof off or a team of marginally talented people who are hungry as heck? Don't even know how to play the game well. But they want to win. And they, they're willing to make Get this, sacrifices to win. We've stopped making the sacrifices to win. We've gotten used to losing. We 
accept the fact that we are on the wrong side of history. Heard that one before? You're on the wrong side of history. And so we are. And so we are. Now we know how history ends. Amen? We know who wins in the end. And so there might be a lot of comfort among you to say, you know what? I'll just do my thing and I'll, you know, I know who wins in the end. I hear that. I know who wins in the end. But what did Doc and I say part of your job is here on earth? What is part of your job here on earth that I believe will determine whether you win in the end? And that's how many people you brought to that victory party. See, I think God judges us on many things. But one thing is how open you were to the Holy Spirit to touch other people's souls and save them so they can participate in His glory. So how much fight you got left in you? I look at it this way. I, I have to say to my kids, I do it on a regular basis. I apologize. Doc's very kind saying, you know, I fight the fight, and I did. I've, all you have to do is Google my name and see how much people hate me. <laughs> they do. But remember, as the Lord said, they hated me first. Don't be afraid of hate. Don't you want to be hated for the right reason? You want the devil to love you? You want to be hated. You don't go out of your way to do... You're hated because you're doing good. You're doing the righteous thing. And you're doing it very important... You're doing it with the love of Jesus Christ in your heart. Because too many times we stand up and we act like they do. We don't act with love. We don't act with compassion. We don't act like we actually care about their soul. We act like we're trying to judge their soul. Amen. And so I'm asking... I'm pleading with you for the future of this country. I look at what is going on in this country today, in the world today, how much and how fast things are accelerating. Just accelerating the ability to do things that are beyond, you know, People in autonomous driving vehicles and all of these things that are happening that just are speeding faster and faster down the road. And with it, the greater ability for those in power to control those minds. 
It's coming. And unless we make gains and fight back, then God help the next generation. Now some would say, well, you know, there could be a persecution and, and that would be a great thing for the church. That's easy for you to say sitting where you're sitting. You think the folks who were beheaded in the desert thought it was a great thing for the church? It was a great thing for the church. Those was it 21 or 22 men who were marched out on the in the in the desert and had were beheaded. All of them Christians, as you know, except one. You know that story, right? Every one of those men. Do you remember that where the ISIS took out and and had those guys kneel down and put their head and they chopped them off? Every one of those was a Christian except one. One was not a Christian. And they came to him last after exhibiting what was going to happen to them. He was not a Christian. But you know what he said? He said, I want to be with their God. I want to be with their God. That's a powerful God. How many of you are kneeling? How many of you are willing to lose your job? Or to have people write something nasty on your Facebook page? This is not a time for weak-kneed Christians. We need to stand up with love. With love. With love. God is a God of love and mercy. Yes, He is a righteous God and He will judge us. And I fear that day. I hope God is not a fair judge. I hope He is a merciful judge. We need to be more merciful than God because we are not God. So please, when you hear this message, don't think, we got to go to battle. We got to go to our knees. We got to go to love on people. Show them that we care about them, that we care about them now, not just in eternity. That can convince someone who doesn't believe that you love them because you want to save their soul. You want to minister to them in their needs. That's how we save America. That's how we have a revival and it isn't preachers standing up preaching. No offense, preachers. Revival comes in the hearts in each and every one of us to love and witness the love of Jesus Christ to every man and woman we come in contact with. Without fear. And know you're going to fail more times than not. If there's anything that I've learned in my life, I've learned that failure as I see it is not always failure as God sees it. I often tell this story 
I'm sure some of you have heard it, so I apologize for retelling it, but I'm in Michigan, so I have to tell it. This is a story when I was in the United States Senate and I was leading the debate on trying to overturn President Clinton's veto of a bill called Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act. We tried to ban this horrendous procedure. And we had debated all day. I had actually been on the floor of the United States Senate debating a senator called, named Barbara Boxer for six hours. I'm Catholic, so I think I got time off in purgatory for that six hours. <laughs> amen. I know I'm not going to get a lot of amens on that, but amen to me. It's okay. We can agree to disagree. And so I'm finishing debates, 8 o'clock at night, the Senate's closing down, and I have at home... We have four children. One's a, just a little one. She was probably not, yeah, she was not even a year old at the time. And I'd left the house at five in the morning, spent the day, that's what I was doing. I was, you know, I was a senator, I was a busy guy, I was an important guy. So I was just running, running, running. So it's eight o'clock at night, we're shutting down, and I thought, you know, I just feel like I gotta say something. I just felt the spirit move me. I said, I gotta say some more. It's just, we're two votes short, and Maybe somebody, maybe some senator who doesn't have a life was home watching C-SPAN. <laughs> it could happen. So I remember going back to the cloakroom, calling my wife. I heard my little Sarah Maria crying. And I asked her, I said, you know, honey, I really feel like I got to do this. And of course, she said what she always says. If that's what you feel the Lord's calling you to do, then... I'm with you 100%. So I went out there, and I just poured it on. I remember telling Mike DeWine, who's now governor of Ohio, but he was sitting in the chair at the time. He was a senator from Ohio. I said, Mike, I'll just be a few minutes. An hour and a half later, don't get worried. I know what time is. We're getting, we're reaching the time. I get it. But I said, I'll just be a few, an hour and a half later, I finished. And I just, I poured it out. I was talking to all these kids who wrote me from all over the world and their families about how they were watching what was going on. Because you see what they were saying, the other side was saying, we have to keep this procedure legal for women who find out later in pregnancy that the baby they're about to have isn't what they were expecting. Remember showing this picture of a man from London who had spina bifida. He says, I'm sitting here in my wheelchair watching people describe me and saying why I should be killed. So I told the story after story of all these people with disabilities whose mother, her, mothers heroically fought to save their lives. I finished, came back, got home that night. Everybody was in bed. Got up the next morning. Everybody was in bed left, came back, and we lost by two votes. And I remember walking out of the Senate chamber and looking at the Supreme Court, I'm vividly in, etched in my mind, and saying, what a fool I am. How prideful I am. 
Another day where I was not home to tuck my kids in. Another day where I didn't lay with my wife in bed. All because of the pride I had to think that I could make a difference. Then three days later, we got an email. It was from a young man from Michigan State University. And he wrote the following. Thursday night, I was, my girlfriend and I were sitting watching television. We were flipping through the channels, and we came across you standing next to a picture of a, of a young man with a disability, and so we stopped. And we started listening to you describe this horrendous procedure and what you were and, and what was at stake. And I looked down, and I saw tears running down my girlfriend's face. And I asked her what was wrong, and she said, I'm pregnant. And I wasn't going to tell you. And I have an abortion scheduled for tomorrow. But I'm not going to have an abortion anymore. You will have many times where you have the opportunity to do something that the spirits asked you to do and you question whether you can be successful in doing it. In fact, you might even know that you won't be. You might look at this person or this group and say, there's just no way. But God does not call on us to be successful. He calls on us to be faithful. God calls on us to be faithful. Because God doesn't score wins and losses the way we do. I would have saw this, seen this as a loss. But I got an email. And I'm asking you to go out and lose. Go out there and put on the line and be the Washington Generals against the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> because that's what it's going to feel like, folks. In the world today, that's what it's going to feel like. You're going to feel like, I got no shot. <clears throat> but remember, God doesn't call on you to be successful. Let Him win the game. Let him have the glory. You don't need the glory. Let the glory be God's. Lose, 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 lose. And up in heaven, God is ringing that bell. Win, 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 win. God. Is he a generous God? Yes. Is he a giving God? Yes. Is he ever not going to reward your faithfulness? No. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? How hard is this to be hated? How hard is this to be embarrassed? How hard is it to be ridiculed? How hard is it to be unliked?
Thank you for being here. Thank you for following a leader, a shepherd, who has the word of God and has the courage to proclaim it. Unapologetically. Lovingly. The charge is now yours. Not just the pastors. Everybody who's not a pastor, raise your hand. Everybody who's going to stand and lose for the Lord, raise your hand. Got a bunch of losers here. Donald Trump wouldn't like you. But the Lord will. God bless you.